Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Glass. And today I am sitting here with a former high school teacher of mine, Ann Pearson. Ann, how are you today? I'm well. How are you, Carter? I am. I'm better than I deserve, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so I wanted to start today, uh, maybe a little throwback for you, but when you first decided that you wanted to be a teacher, um, it, was that something that you always had? Uh, kind of on your heart that you wanted to teach and be around kids or was that something um, that kind of was not always intended? No, actually at my retirement party, I had talked about this. I remember being 17 in junior English, the same probably survey class, American Lit class that I had you in, or I had you in Brit Lit in like 11th grade, right? Yes, I believe so. Uh, Probably. Anyway, yeah, like as a 17 year old, I remember sitting in my English class and even as a 12th grader, but it started in my junior English class where if a teacher gave out worksheets or notes, um, I would look at them and say, yeah, I think I would use this in my classroom someday. Or no, this isn't very good. I wouldn't use that in my classroom. So I was already sorting through material that I was going to use in my classroom as a college graduate, as a teacher, when I was 17. So I guess if that doesn't say teaching was a calling for me, I don't know what does. Yeah, I, I love how you always like put something in a classroom format because it, it was kind of unconscious, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, it's just natural. And I wonder, it makes me wonder, is there DNA for teaching? You know, like, I, I, I'm adopted. I think you know that. So I don't really know if I have teachers in my family, but my husband is a teacher and you can just see it in the bloodline. Like they are, even if it's not by profession, they really have like this natural ability to teach. So, so my husband also was in the same boat. He knew he wanted to coach and teach in high school as well. And that's where we met. And so it was kind of fun to you know, kind of know where I was, what I was going to be doing with my life and who I was going to marry. And we just kind of went off to college and did those things and then came back and he's been teaching 29 years and I've been teaching, although retired, um, for 27. So I think it worked out. I think it's working out. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned college and I don't think it would be fair if I didn't mention uh, your college basketball career. And I mean, I just talk about that for a minute. I mean, what was that like? What, what are some of the experiences you had, some of your favorite memories from that? Sure. Um, it was scary. Um, you know, I grew up, although in a different generation than you, Carter, um, nine miles from where, you know, you grew up. I was in 4-H. I had worked on a farm. I did all that country kind of living. And then I went to Buffalo, New York <laughs> and uh, culture shock um, for sure. So one, it was really a leap of faith. And, and I say that truly as a leap of faith. Like I, I literally can recall the morning, I felt like a faithful reassurance that that was where I was supposed to go was Canisius College um, in Buffalo, New York. And um, I just felt like this, this faithful reassurance that everything was going to be okay. 
So I just kind of followed that voice and that's where it led me. And um, so scary for sure. Um, but some of my, some of my best friends come from my college experience and my teammates, um, former teammates, they were in my wedding. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. We got to play, I got to play against some incredible talents. I think I've told you Carter, how our, our team played against Virginia, this powerhouse of women's basketball. And I had to guard one of the two tallest twins in the Guinness Book of World Records at the time. Do you know this story, Carter? I do not, but I am very intrigued. <laughs> oh, it, it's anticlimactic. I, I will tell you that. But um, no, so their point guard was Tammy Reese. And I think she went to the WNBA. And then their, their powerhouse, you know, posts were Heidi and Heather Burge. And they were 6'5". And I had to guard them at 5'10", of course, only one at a time, but, um, oh my gosh, they, we, we got crushed, but <laughs> I remember, uh, now you were a post player, you were a post player in high school, right? And are you still? I'm, I'm what you'd call a Swiss army knife. I'm wherever they need me. Where, you're the utility man. Right. Yeah. Well, no, I, I was definitely planted as a post division one at 510. So I had to work my butt off. But um, as you know, as a post, maybe we're not the fleetest of foot necessarily. Um, maybe center of gravity isn't as low. And if somebody drives baseline, you know how you're supposed to cut off the baseline or at least back in when I played, that was like a cardinal rule. And Tammy Reese, who had two knee braces on, went baseline, burned the guard, came at me, and I sloppily tried to cut off the baseline, and she fell out of bounds, and what I mean by fell, like it was a raised court, and I got booed. It was a, it was at their home, you know, their home arena, and uh, I got booed by thousands of people because I knocked Tammy Reese off the basketball court with her braces on. I was mortified, but um, I, I remember walking off the court after the game, thanking my coach for the, just the experience of playing against Virginia at Virginia, playing against these players. I just knew it was a monumental experience. I didn't know at the time, like how it would play into my, I don't know, overall experience, but it was pretty cool. And, and Tammy Reese was fine. So nice ending to that story. Yeah, it's a win-win with the experience and her being okay, but it doesn't sound like it was a win on the court. Absolutely not. Nope. <laughs> so I want to just take it back a second here. You, obviously it's a culture shock. You know, the words you use, a culture shock going to Buffalo, um, coming from a small town. And I've had a lot of people recommend traveling, you know, walking in another man's shoes, um, and I believe it's super important. It's something I want to do and really pursue. Um, but is there any specific things you remember um, being in Buffalo that really broadened your perspective? I mean, coming from a small town? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, I think it was the way they do life, you know, um, subways, taxis, just, just moving around was, was, interesting um 
you you would hoof it, you know, like, oh, I've got to walk 10 blocks somewhere. Not a big deal. Um, I think also what I missed was, again, how you do life is um, I didn't see a sunset. I'd have to drive to the shores of you know, like downtown Buffalo where, um, you know, the lake hits the shore to see a sunshine or to see a sunset. And gosh, like now I look out my back porch and I can see the horizon from east to west to north. It, like I had missed that, you know, just the sights and the sounds. It talk about sounds. Oh my goodness. My senior year, we lived on the corner of Buffalo and, or, oh my gosh, not Buffalo and Maine. Let's see, Delavan in Maine. And there was a bus stop. We lived above a restaurant. We were across the football stadium. Um, there was a police department one way, just a couple blocks away. The firehouse was the other way. It was never quiet. I don't know how I slept. And I just have this appreciation for, you know, kind of solitude <laughs> sometimes now. But it, it was adjustment, the sights, the sounds. Um, I think they're where I went, the this, um, friends I made, they were pretty intense. Like I, I wouldn't say, and they were from all over the East Coast. Like I had a teammate from the Bronx, um, Long Island, and I loved it. She would uh, just, again, the sounds, she would say, pass me the ball, give me the ball, ball, or Long Island or Palm Sunday. And it was so like, they would, they would like, uh, have fun with me and how I would pronounce as a Midwesterner every little syllable, like Palm Sunday or ball. You know, uh, it was just, it, it, I thought that was fun stuff in the food, the cultural food. Um, I wasn't even introduced to ranch dressing until I went out there. That's how sheltered I was. Wow, ranch dressing. <laughs> It was all Thousand Islands, baby. Mm, that's that's a hard knock life right there. That is that's <laughs> traumatic. Um, and now it was kind of fun to like reverse the roles because we played Central Michigan, so we drove a huge you know charter bus, Greyhound bus from Buffalo to my house on our way to Central Michigan in Mount Pleasant, and um, they so they stopped at my house. When that Greyhound bus hit the gravel road, I think they thought the world was ending. I mean, think about it. You've never, I just explained like what transportation looked like or sounded like. When that, and the bus driver had no idea that there was a gravel road coming up, right? And so we hit that gravel road probably going 60. <laughs> it was it was scary and funny to me um but it rocked their world yeah definitely i i can only imagine i have a i have a teammate here from the netherlands who you know moved to los angeles when he was younger and uh you know coming out here being surrounded by cornfields and tractors mm -hmm. and country yeah. music i mean it it's like a whole new world uh, what does he think what does he think of country music? I was actually able to get him to walk around campus screaming the song Big Green Tractor at the top of his lungs. Oh, so wow. I, I think it's safe to say he's a fan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I 
never tortured. And I guess I say that because I know there's probably a lot of music fans listening to this, but I was never like a super big fan of that. So I did not really torture my teammates with that, but man, I should have, I should have just gone all out, but I, I withheld country music. Yeah. Um, and so you grew up on a farm doing 4-H and obviously, um, for all of college athletes, you have to have an incredible work ethic, really. Um, you have to work your butt off to, uh, in practice to get in the game and every day in between. What are some other things that uh, were quick realizations to you being a college athlete? Ooh, that is a good question. Like the wake-up call, right? Um, I, I think it was, it was up to me. You know, I didn't have my parents there driving me to practice or making sure the meal was on the table or that I was getting enough sleep. Um, the coaches were awesome. I mean, it, it was a family, as I'm sure you experience as well. But um, really, the wake up call was just if it the independence piece to it, the the complete accountability Um yeah, so I would have to say that, that um, mom and dad aren't there and there's big things you still have to take care of and it's, it's kind of up to you. Yeah, and at 18 and 19 years old, that's that's not usually the first thing on somebody's priority is healthy grocery shopping or getting to bed on time. It, it's right. an incredible adjustment you have to make very quickly. And you know, like there were, there's, there are other things to do, you know, uh, temptations to be had. And, um, I was, I didn't, if, I didn't drink in high school not not once, like I was not a partier. I, um, I was vanilla is, is anything. And, um, and it worked for me. And so then I went to college and there were some raging, um, parties that, um, you know, I would attend and just kind of observe and leave, <laughs> but I didn't have to leave. Like I could have, I could have joined in, but I don't know. That just never really appealed to me. And, and some of my teammates would partake and then they would show up to practice the next day, reeking of alcohol and not doing the, the best that they could be doing. And sometimes I, I got a little irritated with that. Maybe I'm just a little too straight laced, but um, I, I didn't know how you could do both and do your job well, being a student athlete and also partake in other things that I would imagine most other college students would call the college experience. Yeah. I mean, there's wherever you go, there's always those distractions and temptations and you have to be, make a very conscious effort to, I mean, really work to be the best version of yourself in those situations. You have to think, <laughs> how am I going to feel tomorrow staying up late playing video games or sure. going out drinking with friends and stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so the premise of this podcast is advice to a younger generation, um, wisdom that you've accumulated over the years. And so I would love for you to share some of uh, the knowledge and advice uh, that you would look to give um, to high school age, college age students that are navigating life. 
okay. So, so looking back many, many years ago, I, I think I could, can relate, still relate to this, even maybe as someone who's, you know, not in high school anymore, but so I remember being kind of caught between two groups. Like there was one group um, and maybe even books, like um, books with these kind of themes that would say like, explore who you are, dare to be different, define yourself, don't let anyone tell you who you are. And so that was like one group. And then there was like this other group, this other camp that would say, stay in the lines, um, respect boundaries, respect authority, um, you're one of us. And, and that's a hard place to be kind of caught in the middle, kind of caught in the gap when you have these important people that you admire or you, you, you emulate and they're saying two different things and you're 17 and 18 years old trying to figure out who do I listen to? What is the better advice? And I think that's such a confusing time, but I think looking back, I think you need both. I think you need both camps. I think you need both groups of people, even though they're saying different messages, they're both really important messages. And I, I think that if you can learn how to navigate that no man's land that seems to exist between those two groups, that's where you learn who you are. You do dare to be different on your own terms, but you also are respecting some boundaries. You just have to kind of figure out what those boundaries are to respect and how far you dare to be different. And, but I think that's where the, the growth is. And that's kind of like where you settle into yourself is when you can figure out how to navigate that gap. Does that make sense? Yeah. And um, I don't, I don't want to cut you off here on a tangent, but um, this has been something I've thought about a lot. And um, just speaking from personal experience, how did you find that balance? Because like you said, I mean, you need a little bit of both. You need a healthy balance between uh, both those two extremes. I mean, you can be torn between, uh, you know, you've heard the term, you know, you're young, like, almost be stupid live fast you know mm -hmm. just you know do whatever you're young you can do it now or um, invest in your future um, you know save, save your money I exactly mean, now like how did you find that balance because um, I think that can be something that's obviously different for everybody and is incredibly tough to do sure I well I think you learn maybe through trial by error in, in some ways. So you dare to be different. Um, okay. So what are the, what's the consequence of that? You know, was, was it a positive or was it a negative? If it was a negative, do you, do you try to change things or why would you change? It's very introspective. I think when you come down to it, but, um, I think it's, it's learning what works, you know, um, I think it's also, who maybe by just very, your very nature, you gravitate toward. So if by nature you are kind of, you, you like to break the mold and take risks and you're going to probably surround yourself with people who are like that and they'll bring that out more. And maybe that's more who you become as opposed to maybe playing it safe um, 
and but but if that's you too like if if you are the one who will take a risk but only if it's calculated and informed and and you have people who support that again and if it works for you then I think you gravitate toward those people a little bit more naturally and then those people like almost kind of like with your permission those people help define who you are but it's kind of by choice instead of just letting it happen to you yeah i and i really like how you put it there and you mentioned that trial by error and i think um, kind of another term for that is you know failure or experiencing uh, yeah i mean in a sense failure and how how have you seen the importance of failure play out in your life or uh, whether you know your basketball days in college or as a teacher um, how did you see failure kind of propel either yourself or others into a position that you know they couldn't see themselves in before okay so I think when I was younger and this might be opposite of of what some people experience but I think when I was younger I was just so afraid to fail you know, I was afraid to come up short. I was afraid to not meet expectations. And, and I guess that's kind of what um, I was talking about before is because I, because I had these expectations and boundaries and respect authority, that worked for me, you know? And, and because it worked for me, I think I became more like that and defined myself as that. Um, but you taught, so the question is about failure. Um, so I think I was, maybe it was like implicitly kind of cast upon me that I should not fail, you know? And um, so I was afraid of failure. I think it takes time and it actually takes failure to be comfortable with failure. And some people might disagree with that. Like, what do you mean be comfortable with failure? Like I want to win. I want to come out ahead. Um, but as a teacher, I think to see though, and I don't want to say, oh, teaching is, um, you know, I just equate this idea of failure with, with um, teaching and learning, but boy, like failure is part of learning. I, this might sound corny, but I was just reading something that said, you can choose, you can look at failure to, one of two ways you can see it as first attempt in learning so like the acronym right of fail or um you can just be afraid of it and so I think that's what I've adopted is it's just part of the learning the learning curve and the more you fail and the more you get comfortable with it the more you realize you know what like there is the other side of failure and and it helps you (laughs) It, it maybe makes you work harder or it makes you try a different approach or it helps you maybe enter into a relationship a little more different um, than you would have otherwise. So, so I, it, it might sound counterintuitive, but I think I've grown to learn to be okay with failure because I don't see it typically as life-altering, devastating, career-ending, the end all of everything when failure happens. Yeah, I think, I think the more and more 
books I read, podcasts I listen to, and people I talk to, the more and more it, it shifts to almost embracing failure because that's where the growth happens. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's where you learn what works and what doesn't work, um, how to go about right. certain things. And you mentioned uh, kind of perspective with that. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, you have the fear of failure or you have, you know, the first attempt in learning. And with that being said, do you have, I heard this question and this is kind of me workshopping it right now, but do you have a favorite failure uh, that you can remember? You know, uh, sure. (laughs) I have plenty. But the one that popped into my head, and maybe it's because we were talking about 4-H, but it goes to show you how impactful um, failure can be. And I also believe that you learn best when you have an emotional association with the thing that you're learning. Um, And so I remember probably being early high school, maybe middle school. And uh, so those who are not familiar with 4-H and and bringing a steer, a beef, like beef cattle to the 4-H fair is like your end goal is to sell it. Like you work all summer, you, you raise it, you care for it, you train it, you, there's a show, like there's showmanship with it, but man, at the end, you're just going to try to sell it. So like you can get some money for college. Right. So that was me. Um, but me being 14 years old, I was more interested in my friends and the social life. I did not show up for the sale. And like these, like this is a thousand dollars in your pocket, maybe $1,200 in your pocket. And so I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, I I was out with friends and my brother had to show or sell that steer. And I knew my dad was going to skin me alive. I was I had failed to, to finish. Do you know what I mean? I had failed to finish. And, um, he, I literally like hid in a stack of hay, uh, (laughs) for a couple hours. And, and he was a man who had kind of a temper, but do you know when he, he saw me, uh, probably in the pile of hay hiding from him. <laughs> he was so gracious. Like he was so, he didn't yell at me. He didn't, he knew I had failed myself mostly. And I don't think that he need, he knew he needed to do much more. And so I, I look at it through his eyes as a parent and how he did that right. Do you know what I mean? So it was my failure but he didn't drag me through the mud because of it. And as I reflect on that, I try to show grace to, to others who in somehow might, they might feel like they come up short with me or in situations, you know what I mean? So, so there's that. Yeah. And you mentioned um, that we learn best when we have emotional association to what we're learning. Um, Can you just speak on that a little more, maybe further talk about what you meant there? Sure. So, so as one of my former students, Carter, um, 
so think about like lessons, right? So I would teach the historical piece to a literary movement, right? So like, oh, the modernism in the roaring 20s. I, I want to get to the great Gatsby and I want to get to modern poetry, but um, I have to teach that. I felt like I, to do that well, I had to teach the historical part. And that's all it is, right? Is like, like, I don't even know. Do you remember anything with modernism? Do you remember anything about um, the 1920s that I taught as a fact, as a fact, as a fact? Probably not. I don't know. I will not be I, offended. I wish, I wish I could tell you that I remember every fact and every bullet <laughs> point, but it, yeah. no, I don't want to lie. Right. And I appreciate that. So but, but part of that is like when you just memorize something, it, there's, there's no em emotional attachment to it. And so it's so easy to forget. But um, Carter, I remember that you wrote, do you remember? <laughs> and I took a picture of this. I thought it was so funny. Tell me, see, let's see if you can remember this. And if you can't, that's okay. But um, there was an extra credit opportunity and we were writing palindrome po poems. I remember you read it one way, you, you write it and it reads one way and then you read it backwards and it's the opposite meaning. Do you remember that? Yes. Do you remember what it was about? I remember, I think I turned in two. Okay. If I, if I remember, you did, but I- you did. This one had to do with, well, let me see if you can remember. I I can't remember it right now. And a, a it, food, it was with a food item that you really loved. And so, so I'm trying to do this emotional. So it was a food that you loved and you thought people really thought it was underrated. Oh, man. There's a lot of foods now that I think are. It was about potato. Oh, of course. The potato, the most diverse of all foods. See, yeah. Okay. So maybe you just disproved my theory, but I remember it. I remember it. I mean, I, I, I learned your love of the potato through an emotional association because I laughed so hard at that. I, I laughed so hard that you dedicated, and that was a tough poem to write. I remember just because of the very nature of how you set it up. So you must've put a little bit of time into that. But I remember it, learning about that, your love of potatoes, because of the emotional association I had through laughter with that poem. Okay. Yeah, I, and I, as you as you were talking about it there, I do remember talking about all the ways you can use it and then reversing it and saying how it's useful. You can't use it for anything. I, I do start right. to remember it now as yeah. you talk about it. Yeah, but I guess on a, that's a potato poem, right? But think of even like lessons in life, like with relationships. You, what isn't there like a quote that says something? You don't remember what people, um, what what people teach you, but how they treat you. You know, like if you think yeah. of a person, you don't think like, oh, they taught me about, you know, palindrome poems. You, when a name comes up, you kind of have like this emotional reaction first. And so um, whether it's negative or positive, it, it, yeah, it's just kind of this theory that if you can somehow connect an emotion to the thing that you're learning, you learn it um, for a longer amount of time, like it sticks with you. Like, you yeah. know, like songs, songs will do that. Like 
what was a song that you and your friends would sing your senior year? There were way so too many. many and some are probably <laughs> not very appropriate for this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you think of those songs and you singing those songs, like you learn those words somehow, or you were motivated to learn them. And uh, the fact that you enjoyed it so much with your friends that lent to your learning of those lyrics. Yeah, definitely. And I want to segue, obviously, we just talked about uh, my experiences in your class and uh, you teaching and everything. And as an English teacher, I'm sure you have read countless and countless and countless books. And I would love to hear some of your book recommendations, or if you listen to podcasts, some podcast recommendations, um, whether they're funny or mysterious or self-help, um, I'm always looking to add to my list. Sure. Okay. So, so books, I can't, I would be remiss if I did not say To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, how I love the bird. Um, reading it as a ninth grader was totally different than reading it as somebody in their twenties, as reading it, somebody in like, who just turned 50 this year. Um, it, it's timeless. Like there's just so many ways to relate to it. So to see, like he got me going on Mockingbird, you know, I can't not talk about that. Okay. So to kill a Mockingbird for sure. Um, and I, I'll do a couple classical, uh, um, you know, probably most of your listeners were mandated to read these in their high school classes. So I don't know if they're recommendations, but, um, so I would say, I, I still love Hemingway's The End of Something, um, but modern uh, literature, I really enjoy like memoirs and um, uh, historical fiction. So one that I read recently was called The Book Woman from Troublesome Creek. And uh, it's mind, like it sounds like, oh, a book woman, great. You have, it, it's about these people who genetically they had a missing protein or maybe an extra protein and they were blue. They're called the blue people from Kentucky. Look it up. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> remarkable. And I didn't know these people existed, but it's basically about how people, um, how librarians or these book women tried to increase literacy and education to the mountain folk. And uh, there was one group of mountain folk who were the blue people and they were obviously very uh looked at with amazement but also you know ostracized they were they were not accepted at all so anyway so the book woman from troublesome creek i just read something called a book called um the girl with seven names um it's about a girl's uh who is who escaped uh, North Korea and what she went through to do that. Um, I'm rereading Farewell to Arms, which is another Hemingway <laughs> um, book, but, but podcast, oh my goodness, that's kind of where I'm at now. Aaron Mankey, I will recommend him highly. He does a class A, just uh, five-star rating with um, Lore. It's a podcast he does. It's called Lore. I've listened to that for probably seven years. 
I stumbled on it like when he first started. He also does one called Cabinet of Curiosities. Um, I just got into one called, um, give me a second. And this one's kind of rated PG-13, but it's called um, So Dead. And it's like mid-Michigan crimes that have gone on unsolved. And boy, uh, mid-Michigan has a lot of unsolved crimes. <laughs> um, so that one's more like you're, you're listening to two gals sitting at a table talking about this. It's researched, but um, so they're so dead. And then the last one um, that I recently started listening to is called Missing Chapter. And it's two history teachers called Phil and Phil. And they um, just kind of do some fun, I bet you didn't know this happened in history or kind of the unwritten parts of history. Um, and, and as far as I can tell, they're well-researched as well. So. Yeah, those it. are, yeah, those are awesome. I'll, I'll have to check them out. Obviously I've heard a lot of Hemingway, but you can never, you can never get enough of an author like that. Um, <laughs> always yeah. so much to appreciation for his writing, but if you have it, you can like you 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 learn to live with it and enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, and so kind of as uh, we begin to close here, one question I always love asking is: if you owned a billboard, what is one quote you would put on it for millions of people to see? Sure. So, like as an English teacher, I think of the the ones that you see, like appreciating commas right like I love to eat spaghetti oh okay hold on for just a second is it the uh let's eat grandma and then the let's eat comma grandma yeah right so haha but yep. I like I, I want to put something up there that would be you know entertaining or entertaining and thought-provoking but I guess I'll just stick with the thought-provoking so it's from Herman Melville and it's simply, we cannot live for ourselves alone. Deep, right? Not entertaining. In, <laughs> incredibly introspective. Right, like what does that mean and what are the implications and do we do that? Do we do it well? I don't know, it's deep. Very. And and it looks like you're you're kind of thinking about it right now as, as we talk about it a little bit. <laughs> I know, my head is like tilted back as you're, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think that you can think about that at any stage of your life. I don't know if I'd use it on a three-year-old. Like we cannot live for ourselves alone. Share that toy with your brother or sister. But why not? Give it a try. I don't know. Make it part of your family mantra. Right. And so... Um as you know we get to the end here is there any you know kind of closing advice or wisdom or anything that you'd like to leave any of the listeners with gosh I don't know I feel like I've just kind of poured it all out there Carter already um I don't know um yeah I think I I, I think the biggest thing is just like we need each other which is you know part of the deep quote that I just threw out there, but we're all connected. We all need each other. We all like, I, I know there's, you know, this uh, self-reliance and 
if you can dream it, you can do it. And I, I just think like, yeah, you can dream it if you can do it. And that's like so hopeful in, in that spirit of self-reliance. But I just think it's a better journey when we do it together. And then when you do do that thing, you have somebody to celebrate with. Yeah, kind of like the, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Uh, oh. That whole, yeah. Exactly. I like that. I'll add that. Yeah. Um, you know, life, life is relational. Uh, it's, a, it's a fraction of what you know, and the whole is who you know. So, yeah. I, yeah. And, and Carter, I mean, you can edit this out if you'd like, but I think you do that well. I, I know you from high school. I, I saw you when you were 14 and 15 and six. I saw like your teenage years, right? I think I had you all three years, ninth grade, 10th grade and 11th grade, right? So I, I think that that is the thing I probably, in addition to the potato poem, will remember about you is that you are relational. You have such a way to connect with people immediately. You're approachable, you're accessible. I don't know, Carter, like maybe like, you've been developing this, you know, your entire life and here we are and you're making a podcast that it's just so easy to talk to you, but we'll hopefully reach people and, and be meaningful. And, and I think you're a natural at it. Well, I mean, I really do appreciate the kind words, um, but yeah, I, and I hope, uh, you know, the message from this podcast, from this specific episode, I hope it gets across and people are able to implement it to, you know, be introspective with your super deep quote or, you know, <laughs> from what we talked about earlier. Um, I really hope that people are able to take just a bit from all of this. So I really do appreciate it though. Oh, absolutely. Well, Anne, it's been fun and always, always a pleasure. I've always learned a lot and um, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. It was my pleasure, Carter Klein. <laughs>